The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight, uh, making this transition, I think I mentioned last week, uh, where we spent the last couple of weeks looking at dukkha dukkha, how the mind how we relate to unpleasant emotional and mental and physical experience and just hopefully discovering like relatively skillful, relatively unskillful ways, those habits of how we relate to pain. And now as we transition into looking at Viparanama Dukkha, the second Dukkha, sometimes called the Dukkha of Change, we're going to just use this frame of Vedana. It's really an important concept in the Buddhist teaching. So the Buddha talks about being mindful of body and mind. The body are the sensitivities of the five sense, physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Did I get them all five? Anyway, you know them. And then uh, mindfulness of the mind. And here, mindfulness of the mind, depending on the particular map that the Buddha used, because he had different ways of talking about being aware of the mind and body. But usually when he talked about being aware of the mind, he broke it down a little bit because the mind's more subtle and ultimately a lot more important to be aware of. So a lot, even though we emphasize mindfulness immersed in the body, because both the mind and the body, of course, arise in the present moment. And the body is at the more concrete, obvious end of our experience. So it's often our training ground, right? We train, we cultivate the stability of present moment awareness using the body, like the breath, whole body awareness, hearing. These more obvious present moment experiences And it's that stability of present moment awareness with the body that then is used to see experience more directly the nature of the mind, which is more subtle. Because both the activity of the body and the activity of the mind happen here. There's no other place for it to happen. So in that sense, mindfulness, present moment maybe, the present moment is an inclusive event, maybe, we can say. It isn't like mindfulness of the body is over there and mindfulness of the mind is over here. It's not like they happen in two different places. And just this is an important thing to make sure that you understand this directly in your experience. Like when you check right now on the present moment, the reality, the ordinary reality of the present moment. It's like this, feels like this. This is how it is. It's not two things. It's just one thing. It's just this, being known, being felt, right? And then in that this that's being known, being felt, you know, we can be curious about what we call mind, mental activity, or we can be curious about what we call sound, hearing, or touching, sensation, right? But it's all here. It's not really in different locations. There is a totality or an inclusivity of the present moment, body-mind. So it's more like the present moment is this. It's a changing this, right? It's evolving or unfolding. And instead of like body over here, mind over here, it might be better to understand it as um, an array of frequency, you know, gross at one end, subtle at the other end. So whatever this is, you know, it has this more refined or subtle end of the spectrum of this present moment and more gross end of the present moment. So the body would be at the more gross end and the mind at the more subtle end. So when the body, (coughs) the body, when the Buddha talks about the mind, then because it's subtle, you know, and again, it's not so much like we can really isolate these different aspects of mind. So like with the five aggregates, 
body is one of the five, and then the mind divides into four ways. Some of you know this division, right? So there's perception, there's feeling, tone, mental formations, concoctions. For those of us in the sutta study groups, we're reading um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's book on dependent co-arising, and he translates sankara, which usually gets translated as mental formation, intention. He translated as uh, concocting, or Santi Carl does, because he's translating the book. And then consciousness. So those are the four aspects. Feeling tone, perception, mental formations, consciousness. A bit like in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's just a different map, body and mind. So body's the first foundation. Then the mind is divided into feeling tone, mind states or mental qualities, and dhammas, sort of the wholesome qualities leading to awakening. The factors of awakening is the main category there in the fourth foundation, like the path, the qualities leading to insight. So there's different ways the Buddha would sort of divide up the mind. But always, however the Buddha talked about the mind, he always highlighted feeling tone. Like There's some quote, I don't know the whole passage, but where the Buddha says, feeling, tone, is everything. Because <clears throat> as an animal, which we are, you know, so just sensing that so much of what's happening here in my life is this animal conditioning. And animal conditioning really revolves around feeling tone. That's, that's not a bad way of talking about being an animal. It's an animal is that part of the software of my mind that's totally oriented around feeling tone, driven, reacting, responding to feeling tone. And we see that. You know, you can see that with, you rub your kitty's belly, if you've got that kind of cat, you know, or you, you, you know, do something nice, and the, the cat kind of, responds to the pleasantness by basically in its own way asking for more. Yeah, I like this. I want more. Or your dog or whatever. Or your partner. <laughs> your kids. Right? Because that's what we do. You know, we, we want more of that pleasant stuff. And in so many little and big ways. Like I feel this nice cool breeze coming down from the win- windows above me. And it's sort of like I kind of want more of that. You know, there's like, if I could get closer, I would. Or if if I was already cold, I'd move away from it. This is just basic animal nature, conditioned animal nature, to go towards the pleasant, to go away from the unpleasant, and to basically not worry much about what's neutral, what isn't clearly pleasant or unpleasant. Generally, because I'm a, you know, being a, a frightened, hunted, hungry beast, deeply programmed to reproduce, neutral stuff doesn't sort of get too much attention. And one of the things we notice when we observe ourselves as animals or other wild animals is a kind of restlessness until there's something pleasant or unpleasant. And then that programming, you know, that sub-program around pleasant, around the unpleasant just kicks in. But until then, they're sort of moving about until they bump into something that triggers the pleasant or unpleasant program. And it just goes on and on. (laughs) And we call it a life, basically. So part of what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks when we were looking at dukkha dukkha, just the ordinary mental physical pain, is just like how we inevitably all day long we're bumping into physical and mental pain and just getting curious about how oppressive that is and how useful, helpful, and unhelpful our habits around physical and mental pain are. Some might be actually quite helpful. 
and we can, I mean, there's so much well-being we derive just for becoming more intelligent uh, around how we handle pain. You know, because so many of our habits of masking physical and emotional pain just make things worse. I mean, it's amazing how precisely wanting to feel better we make ourselves feel worse because of this short-term, long-term phenomena, right? And especially if we haven't felt very empowered to deal with our mental, emotional, physical pain, then we get really desperate for relief. So we're willing to take relief even though we're digging the hole deeper because we'll get a temporary relief and I'm so desperate, I don't care if I'm worse off, I just want some relief, right? It's like, you know, when we're already in debt and really worried about being in debt and we're totally um, anxious about being in debt and we need some relief from the financial insecurity and what occurs to us is to go shopping because we like shopping. We can get distracted thinking about what we should buy and whether it's a good deal only to put ourselves further in debt. Right? That kind of pattern breaks our heart wide open. And you know, as the story goes, that's exactly what motivated something like that is what motivated the Buddha to teach. Because as he was spending several weeks after his deep insight in the vicinity of that tree where he sat that night and had that deep insight, it was sad that he contemplated, you know, trying, imagining, sharing what he had come to understand with other people. And he was thinking, oh, they're not going to get it. And as he was contemplating that, he kept seeing that, yeah, people, they want to be happy, but they do exactly what leads to long-term unhappiness because they, their attempt to be happy might have some short-term effect. Another really graphic image the Buddha used is like a leper, which I guess probably was more common at the time of the Buddha, and how... You know, with uh, evidently there's intense itching in the where the leprosy is on the skin, and what lepers might do is put their leprosy wounds or whatever that you know boil or whatever it is on the skin. I don't know that much about it, but they'd go next to red hot coals to cauterize it because evidently they'd get temporary relief from the itching by doing that to the wound. But the, the process of burning the skin, cauterizing the leprosy, would just make the whole thing worse, ultimately, even though there would be a temporary relief. So that's one of the images the Buddha would use about this not knowing what to do with physical dukkha. And it really comes down to the direct, immediate experiencing of Vedana, the unpleasant feeling tone. And then the viparanama dukkha is the conditioning we have around pleasant uh, feeling tone. We get confused by it. We get spellbound or enchanted by it. We always feel like when things are nice that it's, we forget its ephemeral nature. Like when I anticipate having a snack or going to sleep or seeing something funny on the internet or whatever it might be, the pleasantness enchants my mind because it, there is a pleasantness, there is a pleasant feeling tone, right? But the mind misunderstands it. It takes it to be more than what it is. There's some... It's a, like a lie right, or a, a dishonesty that somebody is going to be satisfied by that pleasant feeling tone. But when we observe pleasant feeling tone, this is why I mentioned last 
Monday to really study this last week, and we'll continue for another week or so, really study ordinary pleasant experiences and really see this, the gratification that is there with pleasant feeling. It is, there is a gratifica- gratification. It, it's a pleasant feeling. <laughs> That's why we call it a pleasant feeling. Right? It's a pleasant feeling tone. It feels good. And the mind likes it. And the mind, heart, body even relaxes to some degree. And that's part, that can be part of the symptom of being enchanted or spellbound or misunderstanding the pleasantness. So we really want to study it so that we really see what it is, the gratification, and what it isn't. It doesn't solve anybody's problem. It's just a nice feeling tone that's there, that's there, that's there, that's there. And often, even while it's there, we're already spoiling it because of the misunderstanding. I think I mentioned this last week. So just bring to mind something today that was pleasant. And just notice if at any point in that pleasantness there was a little spoiling of it by the mind wanting it to be more of the pleasantness than that was there or that it wanted it to last longer or even funny ways like uh, sort of a common neurotic pattern with partners or good friends that we want to tell our friend about how, you know, like you're watching a funny clip from Saturday Night Live or from some show you like, you know. It's really, for you at least, really funny. And instead of like, just receiving the ordinary ephemeral gratification that comes when there's something actually witty and funny, right? The mind is upset. Oh, Mark should see this. You know, Wynn should see this. Oh. So we, we spoil it in a funny way. Or we're not taking a beautiful walk and we really want someone to be there with us. So we're not really appreciating the beauty that's there. As ephemeral as it is, it's real as a, as a temporary experience of pleasantness. But we're not really there for it because in a stressful way, the mind is thinking, God, I wish, you know. So this is the we parinama dukkha, is all the basically studying how we relate to ordinary pleasant experience of the body and mind. Pleasant touches, pleasant sounds. It's like uh, one of the things the internet has done with our uh, way of paying attention, I I hope you noticed, I'm assuming it's pervasive, certainly true for me, but it's like this very pronounced hunger when I'm reading articles. This hung- I want to get to the juicy part. Have you noticed that in your mind? It's like, and it's like, you know, I might have been looking forward to sort of reading the certain authors that I like to read, that I just find them, you know, insightful and intelligent and balanced. And But I notice that I don't even bother to appreciate their writing. I just want to get to the point, to the important point, you know, to the juicy part. And I'll notice that. I notice it in other people too when they're eating food, you know, and it's like uh, there's sort of different strategies around the pleasant bits in the food, right? And you see, it's not like there's a right or wrong way, but what's important is just to notice the mind's strategies around pleasantness, the people who immediately go for the pleasant bits in the food they're eating, and the people who, you know, because of their probably family training, you know, save the pleasant bits to the end as a reward for eating the stuff they're not so keen on eating, right? But this is what I mean about studying our relationship with pleasantness and all the little and, and big ways. Sometimes we don't even notice the pleasantness because we're already on to other pleasant things. You know, 
we wanted a newer car. We get the newer car. It's really nice compared to our previous car. It's newer. <laughs> and then after a while, we're not noticing it anymore because either we're on to the next new car that we're not really going to be able to get for a few years, but we're thinking about it. So we're not noticing how comfortable this car is, how effective it is at doing its job, all the gizmos that it has. So that's another thing to notice that how something we really appreciated, like when we get a new shirt or sweater that we really like, really functional, looks good on us, and it's like it peaks, it really br- provides some gratification, but then we don't, we don't notice that anymore. It's not that it isn't even, that there isn't an actually pleasant feeling tone available. It's just that we're not noticing it because it's like we take it for granted. So that's another way that we spoil the sort of ordinary pleasant things in life is that we have an attitude like, I've already experienced the pleasantness of that. It's kind of in my bank. You know, I own it. And I notice like with things like that, like I, it's almost like I tell myself a story because I feel that way about my home now. You know, we for a long time, Common Ground was at our house and uh, it was the old storefront where Wynn and I live currently. And we didn't have much private space at all in that. And it was, you know, just tiny to begin with. And the place wasn't in very good shape. I mean, it was definitely adequate. Um, but since then, since Common Ground moved here these last 10 years, 11 years, um, we fixed up the place. It's quite comfortable now for two people, really comfortable. And I, and I notice, like, sometimes I really appreciate it, but I notice it's sort of like, in my mind, it's like the place where I live is there as something I could appreciate. But because I have it, it's like that pack rat mentality. It's like I could feed on it and derive some gratification for how pleasant my home is. But because I already have it in the bag, it's mine, by the way, that I'm, I'm looking to acquire more, right? So I'm not appreciating what's already true in my life, that I have this furniture or this comfortable place or this whatever well-thought-out home situation. Because there's more juice in acquisition, thinking about what I might get, who I might become, what I might add to decorate my life more. Right? So that's another interesting thing just to notice. Like all the nice experiences that were just somehow not connecting, being intimate with the ordinary pleasantness of them in my life, like our partners. One of the things that breaks my heart, I mean, it's a, you know, we all have these, these expressions of dukkha that, for whatever reasons, touch deeply. Um, and some of you have heard me kind of rail against the whole phenomena of having pets. I mean, we talk about our cat. I talk about my cat a lot, our cat a lot. But I often say it's not my cat because I disagree with pets. Because right? one of the things that really breaks my heart or people having pets, but not really showing up for the pets, right? Now, they were really there for the pets the first week or month or year or whatever, but life moves on. And then they still, you know, there's still that place in their heart where they care about that pet, but they just don't have time for the pet because they're on to new things. People probably do that with their children, I'm guessing, too. I mean, it would be even... You know, I don't know, more tragic, but equally tragic. Except that pets are sort of trapped in this sort of, this is my, I'm leaking a little here, emotional <laughs> slavery. <laughs> right? Uh, there because of this sort of, you know, not by their, well, maybe by their choice, who knows, depends how you see it, but 
you know, and then to sort of stop showing up in the relationship, not really having an authentic relationship with this other living being because we're busy, because we're not that interested, because they're not the big thing in our life anymore. They're not the exciting, juicy provider of pleasant possibilities. They're a known entity, right? So we tend to, and there's just so many expressions of this phenomena where we're just, we go through the motions. Even, I notice, I, you know, I, I, I attribute this to being a sincere practitioner. Practitioner, I notice, like, that, you know, we have our routines, you get up, the cat, we don't get up, you know, we don't deal with the cat until, unless it's five o'clock in the morning. And the cat's right there, usually about 4.30, touching us with its paw. You know, but at five, one of us gets up, cat gets a scoop, it takes a few nibbles and it wants to go out, right? It gets its, you know, little pull, it, nice, lovely pull on the tail or pet, you know. But I notice how easy it is to do all of that on autopilot. Just doing the whole thing on autopilot, the whole dance, or worse, like shooting arrows mental arrows at least at the cat you know how dare you wake you know how dare you get me how dare you you know expect to be petted you know <laughs> oh poor me having to deal with this cat or whatever so it's just so interesting to see how what was once pleasant can be this oppressive thing in our life the house that we have to dust and vacuum, you know. So it is, householder, so it is. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are born from those who are dear arise from those who are dear. There's a story that uh, from the time of the Buddha, a very famous uh, female uh, student, disciple of the Buddha, wonderful person, a lot of beautiful stories, uh, teaching stories come out of this with this character. But um, she was, uh, uh, I think, the queen of this area. And uh, one of her grandchildren I think died and she went to the Buddha because her heart you know was really burdened and was one of her favorite grandkids I think she had several you know lots of grandkids I think she had 10 kids and each of them had 10 kids something like that so she had a lot of grandkids and one of her favorites died and she was in pain saw the Buddha and said well would you would you like a multitude of grandkids you know as many as there are in the whole city. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Well, how many people die every day in a city this size? Well, dozens, dozens die every day. So that would be the case, right? And then the Buddha gave her this verse after that, like, when there is attachment to what's pleasant, like a lovely grandchild, right? then there's sorrow. There's no, ple- uh, there's no sort of feeding on pleasantness without having to receive the betrayal when that changes, when it goes away, right? Or when you get bored with it. And part of what we want to study, especially as we shift our focus to the pleasantness, it's this fundamental relationship we have with life, and I've mentioned this a few times, where there's this sense of wanting, needing to feed on experience, that the experience of the present moment is a feeding trough. Do you ever catch yourself, like now, even hearing a talk, sort of like trying to feed on the meaning, like some juicy nugget, Something, give me something that will, you know, spice up my life, 
And, you know, we'll take anything, like, including really difficult stuff, like when we watch a horror film. But, any, you know, I, I want some intensity, something juicy, something that makes me feel alive. But one way or another, whether it's with unpleasant stuff or pleasant stuff, we're feeding on experience. It's just the very nature of our conditioned minds. Thinking that experience will deliver some personal meaning. Because that's really the food the ego wants. What we're feeding isn't the body. What we're feeding, like in Buddhist terms, what we're feeding is wrong understanding. So wrong understanding arises, it's just a natural process, like this idea of me as a permanent separate entity here. And me as a permanent, this idea of me as a permanent separate entity needs what? It needs to feel alive. Because if I don't feel alive, this idea of me as a separate permanent entity feels threatened, right? So every time there's something intense, then I get this confirmation, of course I'm alive, because I'm feeling this intense pleasant experience or this intense unpleasant experience, right? It confirms the egoic position of me as this entity. So this is sort of just a description, what in Buddhism we call dependent co-arising. Right? There's, this is the, one of the most subtle and important teachings. Did we do that last winter, I think? It wasn't that long ago. So we'll cycle back through it in five years or so as one of our topics here in our Buddhist studies curriculum, covering the different maps the Buddha used to teach about the way it is. Now, people who are really ready, they'd get it in a flash. I don't know if you know this about the Zen tradition, but they basically made up a story from the time of the Buddha. Evidently, it's, it's not recorded in the early teachings, but it's a beautiful story of the Buddha holding up a flower, right? You remember that story? Some of you have read some of the Zen materials. And uh, Maha Kasapa, I think it is, the character who gets it. So it's like a silent teaching about thusness, about just seeing things as they are. So some people just get it, with, but others need a six-year curriculum. We're basically talking about the same thing over and over again, right? How the mind is in a pattern. It's like a coherent pattern. This pattern has a lot of intelligence. And it has this tendency to replicate itself over and over again. Whether you think about that as lifetime to lifetime or moment to moment, you know, you don't need to, we shouldn't, in fact, believe in rebirth. Nor should we re- believe that you're born and you die and that's it. We should believe in that we don't know, right? That you can have some confidence. We know that we don't know. But right now what we know is that there's birth moment by moment by moment. And that's how a lot of the teachers I study with talk about dependent co-arising or rebirth. It's this moment to moment to moment of our ordinary reality right now. And that process is this thing I've been talking about, this feeding on experience, trying to get satisfied, but never satisfied. Like that graphic image I mentioned, I think last week, but maybe two weeks ago, about this image, the simile from the Buddha about the bones that have been trimmed really well, and the dog is desperately trying to get some nutrition from chewing on the bones, but all the dog gets is cut gums, right? Chewing on the hard bone, not really getting any satisfaction because there's no meat left. There's nothing but a little dried blood. Nothing that's going to satisfy the hunger of the dog. And this is the image the Buddha uses. It's pretty graphic for like our basic ignorant relationship to sense experience. And I see this myself, you know. I'll check the news. No, I'll check the fridge. No. I'll take a walk outside in my backyard. It's okay, you know. <laughs> fill the bird feeder, put something away, 
drink water, pee out water, drink water, pee out water, you know, make a cup of tea, do a little work, feel like I need a reward, do this, do that. I mean, it'd be very, you know, we see this sometimes, nature, the videographers do that time-lapse photography. It's really cool, of course. And can you imagine if some really uh, um, talented videographer did that just with our ordinary neurotic activity? I mean, even something as simple as distilling an hour set into all these micro-movements to find physical comfort. You know, especially if you could get it so that you'd catch every little sort of adjustment, every swallow, every way that we, the mind-body, was trying to find comfort and hold on to it. We'd really get the point the Buddha's making about the viparanami dukkha. You know, and how frustrating... It is that pleasantness is ephemeral, that it doesn't satisfy. And that we're so busy seeking out the next hit that we keep masking the fact that it's not satisfying. That the whole dance, the whole hunger dance can't satisfy, which would be really good because then the mind would be curious, well, is there any other way toward peace? other than this more gross attempt to get a satisfying experience that will finally, once and for all, satisfy me. I mean, what? when we're honest, like we should be now and next week when you're in your small groups, you know, to kind of share, it's like a beautiful place of Dharma humor. Like the ideas we've had that would make us happy and they didn't deliver. Like to sort of all those things in our life. And yet how we're still sort of caught in it, whatever it might be. I mean, I've talked endlessly. I'm, I'm kind of starting to get a little bit out of the woods about the cabin, you know. But it's taken me 15 years, you know. And I still can get like, believe the myth, they, the if only you know, because the image of the perfect cabin in the perfect place is enticing. Even though I've got a perfectly nice home in a relatively quiet neighborhood, you know, it would be hard-pressed for it to be that much better. And I don't know about you, but the River Gorge is really nice to walk in. There aren't that many cabins that have a natural setting as nice as the River Gorge in South Minneapolis. Both sides, you know, there are places that go down by the river that are kind of nice. So, what is the problem, right? It's the habit of feeding. See, that's the big habit. The habit isn't to be gratified. The habit is to want to feed, to want the excitement of what's next, right? And that's what we have to really highlight so that the heart, the mind, we uproot slowly. You know, I mean, it'd be nice if it was fast, but it's usually slowly. We're uprooting the false promise that experience, any experience, is going to be ultimately satisfying. It doesn't mean we give up an experience, you know, receiving, experiencing things. It just means we're not experiencing it from this confused point of view, expecting it to be more than what it is. Sort of interesting to make love not expecting it to be more than what it is or to have a nice meal or to any a nice massage or any nice sense experience hanging out with your friends, you know, going and doing something fun with a bunch of friends. It's really interesting to, to go into that not expecting it to be more than what it is, just letting it be what it is. And I notice, like, when I do that, then I, I really, it, the mind doesn't like it, right? So then it wants, it's sort of, well, let's get on to the next thing. It's like hard, notice this, when you're doing something that's actually pleasant, but you know that it's just pleasant. 
that it's not ultimately satisfying, right? Notice how you don't want to be there. Because the reason we like pleasantness is we think it's going to deliver something to me. But when we're honest, when we're wise, and we realize there's no me that's going to get anything lasting from this, all of a sudden, pleasant experience isn't such a big deal. So like if you like your house, like I like my house, find it pleasant. You know, when I have that wise attitude, I'm not enchanted by my house. And it's a disconcerting feeling because it's really challenging this deepest. This takes us where we're going a week or so with Sankara Dukkha. Because when I'm in that place where I realize my house pleasant house won't satisfy me, won't really make me happy, then it's not really pleasant anymore, it's neutral. Right? So that's really teaches us about this deeper kind of unsatisfactoriness. The deepest kind of unsatisfactoriness is really around, or better, easily understood with neutrality. How irritating unsatisfactory neutrality is because it reminds us of this deepest truth which is there's there's no satisfaction because satisfaction is a concept that depends on a separate sense of self somebody who will be satisfied so the whole premise it just it's like the peg doesn't fit. So in that sense, satisfaction isn't going to be found. So that's the sankara dukkha. The dukkha that is that the view the mind is bringing to life, to reality, to the mind and body, doesn't, the view doesn't fit with the nature of reality. It's like uh, one person described this as a dog barking up a tree that isn't there, right? A sense of me trying to feed on life, trying to get satisfaction from life, but the me isn't there. There's no satisfaction. There's nobody needing to be satisfied even. It's just an empty natural pattern something that got set in motion and has this tendency to uh, reinforce itself until something happens. Awakening. Awakening is just getting these instructions and cultivating the stability of awareness that sees that empty circle or um, what we call dependent co-arising. That's the, it's the Buddha's description of an ordinary human being chasing its own tail in a way that's unsatisfying. And my response to the fact that it's unsatisfying is to try harder. And that's chasing our own tail. That's what we do all the time. And the awakening process is seeing that. And seeing that interrupts that. The not seeing that and the Buddha says this directly, not seeing dukkha, not seeing dependent co-arising is the cause for it to continue. So we keep chasing our tail until we get some instructions that inspire us to cultivate a stability of present moment awareness where we realize in a very direct, immediate, and shocking way, little by little often, that that, that the whole thing is empty, that the, the stress of the pattern, the pattern, the basic pattern of living, is completely unnecessary. It can be dropped. And then it's dropped. And then there's freedom from that stressful pattern. It's not like a heaven, not like me getting to heaven. It's there's an unnecessary 40-pound backpack that's taken, it's dropped. And then the awakened life, when we get there, we're told, It's like this without the 40-pound backpack, without any backpack. It's just nature without friction, 
or some teacher calls it, calls it habit without conflict. The mind and body without any conflict. The activity of life. And this is what we sense. You know, when we go to a sort of a beautiful meadow or hang out in a forest or hang out in the waves in the ocean. I got to go swimming a week or so ago when Wynn and I went to see her mother, took her to the beach, and it was really warm in New Jersey, so we got to hang out in the ocean a little bit. You know, we see that everything is happening on its own. There's something about being in those more natural or wild settings that, you know, like, it's okay. That sort of there's something deeply okay about everything doing what it's doing. And that's that, that this practice, you know, a lot of what we're taking up in these weeks is bringing feeling tone into the forefront of our curiosity, of our attention, so we can see the dependent co-arising, co- that pattern around unpleasant feeling tone see the pattern around pleasant feeling tone, and see the pattern around unpleasant feeling tone. So that's what we'll be doing for the last half. We've already been looking, hopefully, at the pattern around unpleasantness. These, this week and next week, you know, around pleasantness, and then neutrality for the last few weeks. Really taking it up as a study. Reminding yourself when you get up in the morning, reminding yourself throughout the day, putting down a piece of paper, putting it in a pocket, get interested when experience is pleasant. What shows up? Don't try to control it. Don't try to be skillful with pleasantness. Just get interested what the mind does. What is the mind's habit or way of relating to pleasantness? What are the options about what to do to be intimate with pleasantness? And like I said, don't be surprised if there's some serious pushback. Why are you being present? This is pleasant. This is nice. Don't spoil it by doing that mindfulness thing. You'll see that. Like you put, you put on the sort of show you like to watch, but you never tell anybody you watch because you'd be embarrassed. And then all of a sudden it kicks in like, oh yeah, this is pleasant. And you'll be so, it's like, and, and that's like such an interesting thing like, I don't want you here now. Right? Because that, that really speaks to the integrity of our practice. Where are those places in our life where we are pretty clear we don't want to be awake? And that's like, gives, those are really important times to practice valuing. Like, honey, I'm not judging, I'm not judgmental. This is not about judging. It's not about controlling. You want happiness. I, I know this sounds weird. You want happiness. I want happiness. We want the same thing, right? Awareness is just a tool to get better at happiness. I'm not going to take anything away from you. <laughs> Can I be here? Right. So talk your way into it. And next week we'll report back to each other. And we have a little time now, about 11 minutes. be nice to hear from a few of you just to kind of prime the pump. What have you been learning around pleasantness? Feel free to go back to unpleasantness if you have something that you want to share. Yeah, Tim, you want to start us off? Over here, first row of chairs. Good evening. I find I can't really apply myself wholeheartedly to looking for a pleasant experience nowadays unless I'm like developing my mind in some way or learning something or being creative in some way. Say that again, Tim. You can't apply yourself to pleasantness unless... Unless I'm devel- I feel like I'm developing my mind in some way. That it's like going in some direction that's wholesome. Yeah. But, but the, the basic wholesomeness can be is just seeing what I haven't seen before. Because does it, don't we value that like, what, you know, I mean, it should be, it's good to think this through. I mean, this would be a good place to think through. Like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that given that I'm living this life, 
that I really want to see what there is to see. That it would just, how could it not go better? I mean, it, it's really a, a basic fork where we have the idea that it's better not to know, right? So I'm just going to fill my life with distraction and a lot of loud noise, a lot of intense experience, because it's just better not to see what's going on. I'm not going to ask questions. And so that's, for me, clearly a lot of human beings, I'm not sure they do it consciously, but a lot of times unconsciously we're going this way. And then hopefully we get more reflective and we realize the limitations of that approach to happiness. And we realize slowly, and I think reflection can help, no, I think ultimately it's better to be awake, it's better to see. So that curiosity can really be driven by that wholesome desire, I just want to understand, I just want to connect in a more direct, immediate, honest way with what's coming and going. How could that not support this basic compassionate desire to take care of myself and others? Right? I don't know if that fits with what you were talking about. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Yeah, Robert, you want to go next? And then we'll go to Carrie. I had a... uh session today with my therapist and um, I was going over some stuff from childhood and I had seen it one way an experience I had let's say 8, 9, 10 and he reflected back to me what that experience really meant the realization that I had at the moment which I was seeing it. It's this is happening to me but in reality, I was seeing that the what's happening to me and the person that is making my life uncomfortable is more at fault, even at that age, is more at fault than I am. And I didn't, I couldn't see that experience before like that. The other thing is, I went to return something to UPS store today, and this is a feeling tone, I think. Um, I walk into the store, I packaged, packaged it all up, and um, the clerk behind the counter is on the phone. And she says, that goes over there in the corner. And I felt, how rude. <laughs> I'm a customer. And um, so that was my, I see that now as my feeling tone at that moment. Then I could see she was upset because she was repeating herself on the phone over and over again. But then her supervisor came out and said to her, don't take it personal. <laughs> right? And and still I got put it over there kind of thing. And I did. And I but I kept this feeling of rudeness, you know. And that goes back to my childhood as well. And that, that last point is really important. Every time we experience pleasantness, every time we experience neutrality, and every time we experience unpleasantness, it isn't just about this particular moment. It will bring, you know, it's like uh, when you pluck a string, other related or nearby strings will begin to sympathetically vibrate. And so all of those other experiences around pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, they get activated. It's a deep, deep groove. The article I, or the just a few uh, paragraphs that I sent you today, um, those of you on the email list, you can pass the mic over to Kerry. Um, Venerable Analio, this German monk, he's talking about just through evolution, like where animals have to act very quickly, the feeling tone kind of really pushes the mind to do very quickly what you know is conditioned to do. So it's sort of like this amplifier of action. And you'll see that that's why you know we have so much conditioned force towards pleasantness and towards unpleasantness. You know how strong we can. You know how much energy we can rally to, to get something that's pleasant or to get away from something unpleasant. Things can feel like life and death, even when they're not. Yeah, Carrie. 
Thanks, Mark. I just, a lot popped into my mind as you were talking. So I just wanted to share a few things that, um, that I realized I, so I teach yoga a couple of times a week, a yoga class and, um, it's happened a few times, but it happened just today where at the very end, like I was feeling really, really good and really positive about the class. And like so much, it was just natural. I was just like smiling. I was beaming and I, in mid smile, what popped into my head was this is not going to last and it's not going to happen again. Probably. <laughs> I was like, Oh, come on. And just, you know, it just. I don't know. I couldn't sit You're in that. You're being a good Buddhist. I was being, well, and that almost feels like a catch-22. I'm aware that it's ephemeral, and it yeah. squashes the pleasantness right out of well, the situation. Well, take a look at what actually happened there. What it squashes is the enchantment, right? So it's really the embellishment. didn't really take the pleasantness, but it took away all of that we call it in, you know, some of you know about mudita, the appreciative joy. And what's the near enemy of mudita, appreciative joy? Exuberance. So, th- like, there's that really sweet feeling of having done something beautiful, like teach a good yoga class. And then there's the embellishment, the exuberance, the sort of feeding and ima- imagining, like, I'm a good yoga teacher, or it can happen. O- and when the wisdom comes in and realizes, honey, you know, it ain't what you're imagining or it's not going to last or whatever, it isn't this big thing. There's still something there, but the, you, we often miss it because we're disappointed that the bubble has been popped. So the next time that happens, get really interested in what remains because there's still something there. There's still the ordinary pleasantness of having been part of something beautiful. It's just not personal. But it doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Just because something's not personal doesn't mean it's not beautiful. I mean, sometimes it feels like it was a really a good class, right? And it feels really good. But when I, it feels personal, then I've got something to protect. But when it feels good but not personal, it's really nice because then I'm not worried about it going away, because it wasn't personal to begin with. Or I I don't need the next one to be good, because that one was good. Because it's not, I'm not attaching it to a me. It's just more like just nature, just happening. Yeah, and we're really learning to orient around the happiness of peace instead of the happiness of having or being somebody. Like the peace of not being pushed around by feeling tone is actually a more resonant, deeper happiness than the happiness of the ups and downs of getting and then losing. Did you have more you wanted to say, Carrie? Yeah, just one other comment about what you mentioned about... um I can't remember exactly how you put it, but essentially going into a social environment or something, hanging out with friends and not you know, expecting it to be this some insane, out-of-control, amazing experience. And just I find when I go into a situation, and I want to say lowering my expectations, but just without expectations of how it should go, I end up enjoying myself far more than I would otherwise. Yeah. I remember something Patrice, some of, most of you know Patrice, one of our longtime teachers here. <laughs> she gave a class a long, long time ago, this maybe even the late 90s. And, uh, but the, the joke in, the, in her talk was, uh, she was talking about relationships and like the key to relationships, lower your expectations. <laughs> yeah, but it's really like experiment, like even as we walk out now in a few moments, you know, and you'll see friends maybe, but just that, like play with disenchantment, not as a kind of a downer, but as a a really exalted, beautiful way to live your life. Disenchantment, not as a downer, but as a beautiful way to navigate your life, a really enlivened and light and compassionate, lovely way to live a life, as opposed to enchantment both enchanted by possibilities 
enchanted by the monsters that might consume us, right? So the intense route through life, which is enchantment, or the peaceful route. And it really relates to how the mind is relating to feeling tone. So we need to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. We have small groups next week. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Just enough time for a couple breaths. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.